Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at The Legend of Zelda, an action-adventure title developed and published by Nintendo back in 1986 for the Famicom Disk System and 1987 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. We'll be talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 36. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Give me advice, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So feel free to drop me a line. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to talk about the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does the game sit within the overall history of video games and computer games? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign star values or quantitative rankings to any of the games, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? Narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago? And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And that is done by assigning each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out and play it. Highly recommended. These are the tops of the tops. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still amazing games. I still highly recommend them. Not quite Pantheon level, but still really worthwhile experiences and ones that you should experience yourself, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre, you are pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. Just beyond the golden oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. These are the games where we start getting into the realm of, I can't really recommend them broadly to the general population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. By all means, give it a go. But I cannot recommend these titles to the broader population. Either they've aged a little bit more poorly, or they might have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these games today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may just not have been that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is The Legend of Zelda. <laughs>
Legend of Zelda is an action-adventure title developed and published by Nintendo back in 1986 for the Famicom Disk System and 1987 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In order to understand how The Legend of Zelda came to be, as we often do, we need to take a step back and look at the people involved in its creation. For this particular title, I'm going to focus on what I consider to be the three individuals that likely had the most influence on the game. Namely, Shigeru Miyamoto, Takashi Tezuka, and Koji Kondo. Now, I would venture a guess and say, out of those three names, Shigeru Miyamoto is likely the most recognizable and well-known, as his games have reached legendary status, and he is, for all intents and purposes, the creative force behind most of Nintendo's biggest franchises, even today. But the fact is, nearly every Zelda and Mario title has one thing in common— the trinity of Miyamoto, Tezuka, and Kondo. We'll talk about each of these gaming geniuses throughout this episode, but we're going to start with arguably the heaviest hitter, that being Shigeru Miyamoto. We've talked about Miyamoto in prior episodes, but just to catch everyone up, Miyamoto was hired into Nintendo back in 1977 through a chance interview with then-Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi. At the time, Miyamoto had recently graduated from college with the goal of becoming a manga illustrator. Instead, he decided to join Nintendo, who was just getting started with really developing video games after spending most of its existence as both the Japanese playing card and toy manufacturer. Miyamoto was hired into the company and immediately joined Gunpei Yokoi's team, where he was tasked with designing the external plastic case for the Color TV, which was a series of singular game systems that Nintendo was working on. Shortly after that effort, Miyamoto was given the opportunity to design the artwork for a new Nintendo arcade game entitled Sheriff, which we actually spent some time discussing during our episode on Contra. While Miyamoto's early work was successful, it was the creation of Donkey Kong that really put him in the spotlight. In 1980, Nintendo was in the process of expanding into the United States arcade video game market, and one of its first titles that they planned to release in the U.S. was a game called Radar Scope, a fairly popular Japanese arcade title. Nintendo had high expectations for the game's performance in North America, so they ordered 3,000 cabinets to be created for the American market. Unfortunately, shipping issues caused a delay, and by the time the cabinets reached the United States, only 1,000 units ended up being sold to arcade operators. With two-thirds of the total units produced sitting in a warehouse collecting dust, Nintendo put out a call to arms across the entire company, asking for anyone who might have an idea for how to salvage their investment to come forward. Miyamoto ended up pitching an idea for an arcade cabinet conversion, changing the unused radar scope units into a new game focused on a mustachioed adventurer who had to save a damsel in distress from a rampaging ape. That game was, of course, Donkey Kong, and would go on to turn a potential loss of millions of dollars into a $280 million profit by 1982, which is the equivalent of $830 million if adjusted for inflation. With that success, Miyamoto became a star, and he would go on to work on a number of other arcade titles for Nintendo, as well as some of the earliest games for Nintendo's Famicom 8-bit home console, which had been released in 1983 to the Japanese gaming market before making its way to various other territories in the years that followed. 
as Miyamoto was establishing himself as a creative juggernaut. Another man, Koji Kondo, was in the process of completing his senior year of college. And from a young age, Kondo was always interested in composing music, having begun organ lessons by the time he was five and eventually starting a jazz and rock cover band once he was a little older. As he moved further into his teenage years, he began attending the Osaka University of Arts, which is right around the same time as the arcade game market was beginning to become incredibly popular. Now, while Kondo didn't major in music, he did find that he loved arcade games, and specifically the kinds of sounds and music generated by arcade sound systems of the time. Space Invaders and Donkey Kong were personal favorites, and Kondo believed that video games were pretty much the only way that he could create the kind of music he was most interested in. So, he decided to teach himself how to create computer-synthesized music, first composing pieces for the piano, and then converting that music into digital representations of each song. Eventually, during Kondo's senior year in 1984, Nintendo began recruiting individuals from his university for potential jobs related to both music composition and sound programming. Kondo thought he'd be a great fit for the role, since he loved both video games and music, so he applied for the job and, after a successful interview, joined the Nintendo team. Upon joining the company, Kondo worked on a variety of titles, including the arcade version of Punch-Out!, which incidentally had its art designed by Shigeru Miyamoto, and several early Famicom titles. Now, around the same time, yet another Osaka University of Arts graduate, Takashi Tezuka, was in search of a post-college job, and he too decided to join Nintendo as a game designer, starting with the company in April 1984. In what would be a serendipitous turn of events, Tezuka, Kondo, and Miyamoto would all be assigned to the same project in the summer of 1984, which was the first time the three would have an opportunity to work on the same title. That game, entitled Devil World, would be released on the Famicom in October of that year. Now, I'm going to venture a guess and say that many people probably haven't heard of Devil World, so let's talk about it very briefly. Devil World was effectively a Pac-Man clone, albeit with several unique design elements that served to iterate on the general Pac-Man formula. In the game, you control a dragon that has to eat all of the pellets in a maze, which should sound pretty familiar. Where the game differs from Pac-Man, though, is the fact that in order to actually eat the pellets in the maze, you have to pick up one of a number of crosses, which effectively serves as a power-up of sorts. While eating those pellets, a dancing devil at the top of the screen may also, at any point, cause the screen to shift left, right, up, or down, changing the playable area of any maze and throwing an additional wrinkle into the traditional Pac-Man formula. Assuming you got past the first stage, additional level types and a variety of maze designs would follow, creating an experience that was both familiar to many gamers while at the same time adding a unique flair that served to make the act of playing the game feel fresh. Devil World would end up being a significant game in history for several reasons. For one, it was Shigeru Miyamoto's first console-exclusive title. Previously, he had only worked on arcade games that would eventually be ported to the still-relatively new Famicom system. This was the first game that was designed exclusively for the Famicom. Another reason this was significant is because Devil World would represent the first game that Takashi Tezuka would work on, acting as a co-designer alongside Miyamoto. 
Interestingly, Tezuka didn't even know what Pac-Man was when he was assigned to work on the title. So his role ended up being one where most of the time, he took direction from Miyamoto, while at the same time being afforded an opportunity to provide his own unique ideas for potential inclusion in the game. And finally, Devil World would be one of the first titles that Koji Kondo had an opportunity to create music for. Devil World didn't receive a widespread release beyond Japan, due entirely to the fact that Nintendo of America believed the religious iconography and devil-like creature included in the game bordered on the verge of blasphemy. So this early Famicom title remained a relative obscurity for several years following its release. But what it did do is begin a partnership between Miyamoto, Tezuka, and Kondo that would eventually result in much more well-known titles being created. If we fast forward to 1985... Nintendo was nearing an inflection point. For the last several years, they had been working on creating games for their Famicom system, and over that period of time, the team learned a lot about what made a good game, as well as how best to use the capabilities of their 8-bit system. At the same time, Nintendo was readying for the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, a launch that they recognized needed to make a big splash if they had any hopes of revitalizing the video game market that had just started to recover from the early 80s crash. Furthermore, in Japan, the company was preparing for yet another launch, an add-on peripheral for the Famicom called the Famicom Disk System, which would use cheaper-cost floppy disks to both provide additional storage capabilities over the traditional cartridge format, while at the same time addressing chip shortages that were prevalent due to the sheer demand for Nintendo titles by gamers and retailers alike. It was a stressful time, but it was also a perfect opportunity to innovate. So, Nintendo decided to greenlight two projects. One would represent the pinnacle of current game design, taking all of the lessons learned over the last several years and distilling all the best parts of prior games into a single title that would effectively serve as the perfect representation of what the cartridge-based format would be capable of, and would, hopefully, act as a system seller for the forthcoming North American NES launch. The other project would represent the future of game design, utilizing the capabilities of the soon-to-be-released Famicom Disk System to create an expansive world beyond what current cartridges would be capable of, and would, for the first time, allow players the ability to save their progress without the use of a complex password system. That first cartridge-based game would eventually become Super Mario Bros., while the second Famicom Disk System game is what would eventually become The Legend of Zelda. Bringing both games to life would fall to the same team, with Shigeru Miyamoto directing, Takashi Tezuka designing, and Koji Kondo composing, along with others providing support for the underlying programming and art creation. Interestingly, the development for Super Mario Bros. and Legend of Zelda would effectively represent two sides of the same coin, with each title being designed in such a way that ideas that didn't make sense in one game would almost certainly work in the other. In fact, during the development of the two games, the team would often bin their ideas into two categories, literally labeled Mario Ideas and Zelda Ideas, with Miyamoto acting as the final judge as to which game each idea would be applied to. Perhaps the most notable example of this kind of decision-making was related to the overall structure of each game. It should be said that Miyamoto, as you might expect, had a grand vision for each title. 
His goal with Super Mario Bros. was to create a very linear experience, where every action that a player took was effectively sequential, and the game would even begin introducing the player to various core mechanics in an almost friendly, hand-holding kind of way. This kind of user-friendly design was almost unheard of in this era of gaming. The concept of embedding tutorials of sorts into games really only came about in the 90s. Before then, the assumption was that gamers would either need to put in the time or read the manual in order to understand how to play a game. But Super Mario Bros. did in fact provide a tutorial, at least of sorts, in the form of the first level, and this was entirely by design. Miyamoto wanted any player who touched the game to understand how to play the game and what the mechanics for the title would be, simply by completing the first level. The thought was that if you could complete level 1, you'd have the foundational knowledge needed to tackle the remaining 31 levels of the game. Now, it's not like the team created tooltips that popped up on the screen that said press A to jump or anything like that. But that first level of the game was designed to gently introduce players to the game, and for the most part, it succeeded. For The Legend of Zelda, by contrast, Miyamoto wanted an entirely open experience. The idea of any sort of sequential progress in the game was pretty much thrown out right from the beginning, with the overall goal being an experience where the player had to think about what he or she needed to do next, rather than the game guiding you onto your next goal. There are actual stories of original playtesters in Japan having a pretty difficult time working their way through the dungeons in Zelda, with complaints of the game being too complex and not nearly straightforward enough. To that, Miyamoto basically replied, yeah, so? Now this wasn't Miyamoto being flippant, he was just looking to create a very different kind of experience, and in fact, he was banking on players sharing notes with each other in order to uncover all of the game's secrets. Nowadays, that kind of gameplay is prevalent in many Souls-likes, where there's almost no way that a single player will ever see everything the game has to offer without collaborating with others. Today, that means working together on the internet. Back in the 80s, that meant schoolyard notebook exchanges and map comparisons. Beyond that, though, even the simple act of acquiring your sword, which is pretty much the first thing most people do in the game, was an intentional decision to force players to think about the game differently. In early designs of the title, you would begin with a sword already in your inventory. Miyamoto actually decided to make the game less user-friendly by taking that sword and forcing you to speak with an old man in a nearby cave before you could get your first weapon. If someone failed to go in that cave at the very beginning of the game, uh, well, I don't think it would have ended well. Though apparently there is a way to beat the game without picking up a sword, I just don't know why you would want to. So, clearly, even though the same team was working on both titles... Mario and Zelda were intended to be two very different experiences. Now, something you might be wondering is, what was the actual inspiration behind The Legend of Zelda? I mean, we know Miyamoto is a very creative man, so it's not hard to believe that he would simply come up with the whole experience simply from his imagination. But in this case, the overall design of the game actually comes from a much more real experience that Miyamoto had in his youth. You see, when Miyamoto was a child... He loved exploring the nearby countryside, oftentimes wandering in unknown fields and forests without any sort of map or navigation guide. He would simply explore. 
On his various adventures, he would discover landmarks that he never knew existed in the area, like lakes, fields, woods, and even caves, which he would go into and, aided by the light from a lantern, try to see what secrets were held within. As he explored the areas near his home, he was filled with a constant sense of wonder and amazement. He never knew what he was going to find when he went out exploring, and that feeling, the sheer act of discovery, of unearthed secrets, of a true open world with limitless potential. Those experiences and feelings are what Miyamoto wanted to give to players when they played The Legend of Zelda, and that drove a number of his design decisions. Now, another interesting anecdote. Apparently, the design of the game's dungeons, where you have numerous rooms connected by various doors, hidden passageways, and invisible entrances, was all inspired by the sliding doors in his family's home. It is fascinating how childhood experiences can shape future inspiration. So while the overall inspiration for the game design came primarily from Miyamoto's childhood adventures, developing the setting and story behind the title fell to Takashi Tezuka. Tezuka, beyond being a game designer, was an avid reader, and he had a great fondness for medieval epic kinds of tales like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Tezuka sought to infuse the same kind of adventurous, lore-driven experience into The Legend of Zelda, creating a new land named Hyrule, a mysterious set of powerful artifacts known as the Triforce, a princess in need of a hero, and a number of beasts and characters that would serve as accompaniments to the overall story. The act of creating the game's iconic soundtrack would fall to Koji Kondo, who wanted to create music that conveyed the sense of adventure that Miyamoto and Tezuka wanted players to experience, with undoubtedly the most well-known track in the game, if not one of the most well-known video game themes of all time, being the overworld theme. I bet you all know that one. It goes, you know, I'm not going to keep going, but everybody knows that. I mean, come on. It's like one of the best video game songs ever created. But interestingly, there might have been a world where that theme didn't exist. Kondo originally wanted to use a classical piece, Ravel's Bolero, as the main overworld theme for the game. And if you listen to the song, you can certainly hear the similarities between that piece and the main Zelda theme. In fact, the only reason we didn't get Bolero as the theme for Zelda was because the copyright on the music hadn't yet expired, so Kondo couldn't use the music freely. Instead, Kondo had to write his own theme over the course of a single day. And to me, it's absolutely incredible that Kondo wrote such an iconic piece of music in the span of just one day. For anyone who wants to hear that comparison, I'm going to play a brief excerpt from Bolero and transition into the Zelda theme. So here, take a listen to both of these and just listen to how similar in many respects they are. Listening to them back to back, it's pretty easy to see the inspiration. As development neared completion on the title, the team would routinely meet to review current progress and determine how best to drive the project to its release date. 
During one of those review sessions, however, Miyamoto noticed an issue. Takashi Tezuka had made a mistake. He had been allotted a certain amount of space to use on dungeons, and it turned out that he only used half of the available space for all of the current designs. So, Miyamoto had an ingenious idea. What if, rather than simply leaving that space blank, the team created even more content, but rather than integrate it into the base game, they would create what would come to be known as the second quest. In this second quest, players who beat the base game, or anyone foolish enough to name their character Zelda during character creation, would be met with an even more difficult experience, with harder and new enemy types, totally new dungeon layouts, a revised item progression system, new secrets, and an overworld where enemies and characters were relocated to, once again, drive a master-level kind of challenge. Just to note, I think it is absolutely ingenious that the team came up with this second quest idea, and the fact that it exists is yet another way Zelda set itself apart from the pack. It wasn't uncommon for games around this time to have harder content available after you beat a game for the first time. There were plenty of games that got harder the more iterations you played on it. But what was absolutely unheard of was a game where your second playthrough would be dramatically different than the first. I'd even argue that the original Zelda's second quest is probably one of the better New Game Plus modes available, even including modern games, at least as far as the variety of the experience is concerned. We'll talk more about the second quest in a little bit, because I definitely have some thoughts, but conceptually, I think this was an amazing idea. With two quests now part of the overall experience, The Legend of Zelda would finally release in Japan for the Famicom Disk System as a launch title in February of 1986, and would pretty much be positioned as the peripheral's killer app, the game that would sell the console add-on to the masses. Beyond the expansive world and multiple quests, making use of the Famicom Disk System's expanded storage space over a traditional cartridge, there were a number of other innovative uses of the Famicom Disk System's hardware. For one, the new peripheral had additional sound capabilities that, for Zelda, was used for additional sound effects, while the controller had a built-in microphone that, if you blew into it, it could easily defeat one of the more irritating enemies of the game, the rabbit-like Pulse voice. But perhaps the biggest innovation driven by the Famicom Disk System was the fact that each disc was writable, meaning a player's progress could actually be saved. This was pretty much a requirement for a game the size of The Legend of Zelda. I don't even know what a password that kept track of all of the different world state options would have looked like for the game if it didn't use a writable storage medium. But luckily, we will never need to know. And the game would, of course, come out in other territories as well, with the North American release arriving a little over a year later in 1987, in a form that would possibly be one of my favorite game package designs of all time. For those who may be unaware, most Nintendo Entertainment System games of the time came in a standard cardboard box, and their cartridge plastics were a very standard shade of gray, though there were some exceptions. The Zelda packaging, by contrast, was entirely unique. The cardboard box in which the cartridge resided had a small cutout in it, through which you could see the cartridge which was pure solid gold, or at least pure solid gold plastic. I thought this was an amazing idea, and future Zelda releases would continue to have releases, at least for first printings, using gold cartridges. 
These gold cartridges are undoubtedly some of my most favorite items in my overall video game collection. They just look awesome. To better match the features of the Famicom Disk System, which only existed in Japan, the North American Zelda cartridges included, for the very first time, an embedded battery, which would allow gamers to save their progress, similar to the writable discs in use with the Famicom Disk System. The cartridge would also use a new memory controller that would enable cartridges with a larger amount of space than had previously been available, enabling a standard cartridge to fully contain the expansive world created by the development team. Upon its release in both Japan, North America, and everywhere else, the game would be met with universal critical and player acclaim, selling 1 million copies on the first day it was available. This was partly driven by the aggressive advertising campaign, which saw Nintendo spend $5 million for each and every commercial it created to market the title. That was a ridiculous budget for a commercial at the time. But beyond the marketing and advertising, critics and players alike simply felt that The Legend of Zelda was a breath of fresh air, with an invigorating musical score, an outstanding story, and gameplay that would be hailed as revolutionary. It would make its way to many publications' best games of the year lists and would, in the years that followed, be widely recognized as one of the best games ever created. The Legend of Zelda would spawn many sequels, prequels, and spin-offs, and characters from the title would eventually appear in a number of character mashup titles like Super Smash Bros. and Mario Kart. The game series, across all of its various titles, would sell over 128 million copies as of this recording, and with the latest Legend of Zelda game having just released a couple weeks ago, it's easy to see that the game and its characters remain in the pop culture spotlight even today. As for the terrific trio of Miyamoto, Tezuka, and Kondo, they would all continue to collaborate on numerous titles in both the Zelda and Mario series, as well as other titles over the years. Miyamoto and Tezuka currently hold high-ranking executive positions within Nintendo, while Koji Kondo continues to contribute to both popular and video game music even today, with his latest efforts having been focused on scoring and composing music for the recently released Super Mario Bros. movie. With The Legend of Zelda, Nintendo brought its top talent together to create a game that would come to define future generations of games and inspire countless gamers all the way to the present day. It is a landmark title, one that could only have come from the minds of creative geniuses and the type of game that stirs excitement, wonder, and joy in those who experience it. The Legend of Zelda is one of the most well-known and well-respected titles of all time, and as such, it is one of those classic games that nearly everyone has experienced in some capacity. Its status is enshrined in the name of the title, The Legend of Zelda is itself a legendary achievement in video game design, and one that will truly never be forgotten. are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released 37 years ago. So The Legend of Zelda is pretty much a combination of a bunch of different genres. It's action, it's adventure, it's puzzle, it's even a little RPG-ish. So let's talk about what The Legend of Zelda really is. So as you navigate, you basically start with 
literally nothing other than three hearts representing your life, which can be increased via finding heart containers hidden in the world or by defeating the bosses of each dungeon. Now, you have a wide open world to explore, and it is pretty expansive. As you navigate each of the different screens, you have the opportunity to fight any number of different bad guys, and those scenes are very action-oriented. At the same time, the fact that the world is wide open encourages you to map out the experience yourself. It encourages you to explore. This is pure old school goodness, and that's where the adventure element comes in. It infuses the entire game with a sense of wonder and amazement that it just wants you to explore and to find all of its secrets. At the same time, there is pretty much no hand-holding whatsoever. There are a couple of maps and first steps in the manual itself, but for the most part, this is all about you exploring, you learning the environment, you learning the game all by yourself. You're basically thrust into this land, and it is expected that you are going to be the one that figures out all of its mysteries. Every time you die, and if you're like me, you will die quite a bit, You restart the game with your base three hearts along with empty hearts representing any containers that you had found previously. If you're in the overworld, you restart right at the beginning of the game, which means wherever you were, you have to refind where you were. You have to make your way back to wherever you were previously. If you die in a dungeon, you restart at the beginning of the dungeon. So it's not like you have to refind the dungeon, but you do start at the beginning of that particular level. You do have unlimited continues, which is nice, and you have the ability to save, so you do not have to beat The Legend of Zelda in one sitting. As you explore the world, you will encounter various enemies, characters with cryptic clues, merchants, and dungeons. The overworld is truly vast, with a number of different landscapes like forests, graveyards, mountains, lakesides, and beaches. It's truly a testament to the game's design that the relatively primitive 8-bit visuals can convey such variety. It's not even like this was a late 8-bit title. It was still pretty early in the NES lifespan, yet it still evokes such a wide variety of environments and graphical details. I find it very impressive for the time. Now, the main focus of the game is to find and defeat all eight dungeons in the game, collect the missing pieces of the Triforce, and confront and defeat the evil boss of the game, Ganon, saving Princess Zelda in the process. Each dungeon is unique. They're all filled with a variety of enemies and, in some cases, puzzles. You may enter a room with no apparent way out. Maybe you need to bomb a wall to open a passage. Maybe you have to push a block to reveal a hidden staircase. Maybe you simply have to walk through a hidden passage in a wall, which is most prevalent in the second quest. Each dungeon does have a map and a compass, which you can find as you explore the dungeons. The map can help you find secrets either by seeing rooms you haven't gotten to yet or showing conspicuously blank spots in the map that most likely have something hidden in them. You also need to collect keys to open a bunch of different doors in the dungeons. Most dungeons have some special item in them that you either need for your journey or that will make your adventure a bit easier. So it really does behoove you to explore and to look out or search out each of those items in the various dungeons. And beyond those dungeons, all of which are distinct, the sheer variety of nearly 
every aspect of the game is what makes the experience so engrossing. So let's talk about some of those aspects. I want to talk a bit about the monsters in the game. There are a ton of enemies to fight. Most of them have different movement patterns, different attacks, different weaknesses. You have to learn what works and what doesn't. And one of the cool things in the game is that for many of the monsters, there are red and blue versions of them, which basically is a way of distinguishing difficulty. Blue enemies are typically harder, while uh, the red enemies are usually a little bit easier when you actually have to fight them. Some enemies need to be attacked or weakened by specific items. You can't just always walk up to an enemy and whack them with your sword and expect to be successful. There are some enemies that have very specific weaknesses or some enemies that you actually need to use an item in order to make them vulnerable. There are usually clues hidden in the game world to point you to how to defeat certain enemies. Most of the clues are pretty simple, but they are definitely welcome, especially if you're trying to play the game for the first time without any sort of strategy guide or any sort of walkthrough. There are some enemies who are truly and utterly annoying, and we're going to talk about those in a little bit. When you beat an enemy, though, they could potentially drop a useful item, like a heart, a set of bombs, rupees, and some monsters in the dungeons, there are a couple of sets of rooms that actually drop magical items like boomerangs, which you will definitely use as you go through your playthrough. So you can get really worthwhile things from these monsters. Just going back a second and talking about the rupees, that's pretty much your form of currency in the game, and they can be used in shops. There's also a gambling game at certain in a certain spot of the game, as well as the ability to get clues from certain characters. You can buy clues from certain characters using these rupees. You can also be totally trolled by certain characters and have to spend rupees and not get anything in return, which can be slightly irritating, let me tell you. Beyond the monsters, there are a ton of items in the game. And the big thing about items is that nearly all of them enable new mechanics, which makes you want to re-explore the game world to find what secrets you may have missed. It's kind of, in a way, similar to like a Metroid, Metroidvania kind of thing in that perspective, in that there are certain areas of the world which not necessarily blocked off, but there might be some secrets that are hidden that you can't actually access until you get the right item that will allow you to access those secrets. So it's pseudo Metroidvania-ish, but it's not really blocking progression so much. There are a couple of dungeons where you do need some items in order to access, but those aren't necessarily out of the way. They're just kind of along the path of the game that you would be exploring anyway. Regardless, let's talk about each of the items just very briefly. You can get a candle. You can get either a blue or a red candle. Blue candle has one use per screen. A red candle has multiple uses per screen, meaning you could just spam that candle and burn everything in sight. It can act as both a weapon against monsters, though it's not really all that powerful. But the big thing that candles can do, there's actually two things. For one, and probably one of its more common uses, is to light up rooms in dungeons. As you navigate certain dungeons, there will be dark rooms. If you use the candle, you are going to be able to light up your environment and be able to see what's going on in those rooms. The other use of the candle is burning bushes, which will then sometimes allow you to find some hidden secrets. So you do want to use them, and especially once you get the red candle, there's really no reason not to use it. It's not like you have a magic meter that you have to worry about. You can just spam that thing everywhere and just search for secrets in forests and things like that. 
You will also be able to acquire a bow and arrow. The default bow and arrow uses rupees as its a form of currency, so to speak, meaning every time you shoot an arrow, it uses up a rupee. You will eventually get a silver arrow, which is the uh, much more powerful version of the arrow, which is required to beat the big bad boss of the game. You'll also find a stepladder. That's one of those items that opens up new mechanics and pathways because there might be areas where you can't really get to or there's a small little stream or little piece of water in a dungeon where you can't really get past until you use the stepladder to step over it. So that's something that does become useful. Similarly, you get a raft, which you can use at a couple of different docks to uh, go across a body of water to another area, whether that's a dungeon or a secret you will get bombs. Bombs are pretty much useful throughout the entire game, and they are one of the primary ways that you will open up hidden passageways and walls within dungeons and also open up hidden passageways and areas in the overworld as well. There are a ton of secrets in this game, by the way, way more than what I could possibly find. I There are some secrets that, are, that have heart containers. Some secrets are simply a bunch of rupees. Some secrets are really not really useful at all, but they are all over the place. And you would need a ton of bombs in order to find all of them, which unfortunately I'm sure I did not find every single secret, but there's enough of them that you will stumble upon them as you just play the game, even if you're not using a walkthrough or a strategy guide. There's also a, a blue and a red ring. A blue ring will give you, I believe it's reduces your damage by 50% and a red ring reduces your damage to only a quarter of what it would otherwise be. The red ring you get very late in the game in both the first quest and the second quest. The blue ring is actually purchasable, so you can get that pretty early as long as you could accumulate enough rupees, which I believe it's 250 rupees. And I'm almost positive the maximum rupee value is 255 because that's the maximum value for an 8-bit integer. So, well... Yeah, 255, I guess, 256, technically, sort of, kind of. Nah, I guess it's 255 is the best, the biggest for the 8-bit integer. Anyway, sorry, I was going off on a tangent. Regardless, you can buy the blue ring. You have to find the red ring in the final dungeon of the game. There's also a power bracelet that allows you to pick up rocks and small boulders. And once again, that's going to enable you to find some additional secrets. You will get a flute, which serves a couple of different purposes. It can either uncover hidden areas and hidden entrances to either dungeons or other other spots in the game world, or if you use it just in a random spot on the screen, you can use it to summon a mini tornado that will whisk you away to a du another dungeon entrance. It feels random. I think it's random, and I also don't think that every single dungeon is able to be accessed via the flute, so it's kind of limited use from that perspective. But it is kind of cool to use anyway. And it's also the, since this is the first Legend of Zelda game, uh, for those who may not know, music becomes a big part of every single Zelda title. You have games like the Ocarina of Time, which music plays a absolutely pivotal role and critical role in the game. And a lot of times in the Zelda games, there are supplemental musical instruments that play a part in the overall experience. So with this being the first game, that DNA was built into the game, even from its very first title. As you play the game, you will also get a number of sword upgrades. Those are semi-gated behind the number of heart containers that you have. You can't get every single sword upgrade until you get a certain number of heart upgrades or empty heart containers. So that, that basically shows that you are attaining mastery 
of the game, so to speak, or at least that's the way the lore is presented in the game world itself. You can also purchase a magical shield, which can be stolen from you, requiring you to purchase it again if you encounter one of those annoying enemies that we're going to be talking about in just a couple minutes. So you can, though, buy a magic shield that allows you to deflect magical blasts or magical beams that come at you, which become very useful in certain dungeons. Um, Rounding out the list, you also get a red and a blue boomerang. Red boomerang is kind of the default. Throw it, it comes back at you, it can stun enemies. Blue boomerang is able to be thrown much farther. And then finally, there is a magic wand, which allows you to shoot out your own magical beams at enemies. So you can see... There are a ton of different items in this game, and almost all of them enable some certain mechanics that would have otherwise been not feasible or not capable within the game. So the design just really lends itself to being a totally open experience with a lot of different mechanics at play. Even for such an early 8-bit title, it has a lot of complexity here. I will say... The best part of the game is exploring and discovering new items and figuring out how to use those items to either defeat the enormous variety of enemies that you face or discover new areas with even newer things to explore. The sense of exploration, I cannot stress enough how amazing it feels. The whole game just feels awesome. And that sense of just discovery is the kind of thing that I really enjoy in a game. Now, interestingly, just going back to the items a second, a lot of the items that we talked about are entirely optional. You don't need a lot of those items to beat the game, but they will make your life easier. The open-endedness of the gameplay experience, given this was a title from 1986, is just astonishing. Before we move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics, the sound, and all that good stuff, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, like we've talked about in the past... A lot of times when you're in a store, or at least when we were in a store, video game store, computer game store, whatever kind of electronic store back around this time, we didn't necessarily know what a given game would be about without looking at the back of the box. It's not like we had YouTube to look up gameplay videos. It's not like every single game was covered in magazines back then. So a lot of times when we were browsing a game store, we based our decision based on what the box said and what the marketing materials would tell us about the game. So for The Legend of Zelda, the back of the box says, Experience the challenge of endless adventure. Welcome to The Legend of Zelda, where the only sound you'll hear is your own heart pounding as you race through forests, lakes, mountains, and dungeonous mazes in an attempt to restore peace to the land of Hyrule. Along the way, you'll be challenged by tektites, whizrobes, and an endless array of ruthless creatures who will stop at nothing to prevent you from finding the lost fragments of the Triforce of Wisdom. But don't despair. With a little luck and a lot of courage, you'll conquer your adversaries, unite the Triforce fragments, and unravel the mystery of The Legend of Zelda. And then it says, The Legend of Zelda is the most challenging video game we've ever created. To help you keep up with the action, Zelda comes action-packed with... Maps of Hyrule. You can use them to find your way through the overworld, leading you to the lost fragments of the Triforce and extended playing power. Zelda is programmed to remember everything you find in your journey, so you never have to start your search empty-handed. And then there are a couple of screenshots, and of course the box itself is gold, and inside the box is that lovely gold cartridge, which I 
absolutely adore. So if I saw that box on the shelf, I would have gotten it. And in fact, when I saw that box on the shelf, I did get it because it looked and sounded awesome. Anyway, we're now going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. As an 8-bit title, the graphics here are predictably simple. But given what the team was working with in terms of color and graphical capabilities of the NES, it all worked. I don't think there's a single thing I would change about the way the game looks, given the era it was released in. Animations and frame rates are mostly smooth, though there is some slowdown when the game throws a significant number of enemies with flying projectiles on the screen at once, but nothing to complain about too much. I loved the world design, with the variety of different environments, and I loved the enemy design. Seriously, there were a ton of enemies in the game, all of whom looked distinct. Now, sure, there was some recoloring of enemies to represent easier or harder versions of the different monsters, but this wasn't something done to pad out content. It was just an extra added mechanic to make the game even more interesting to play. Overall, other than some of the frame rate issues, I don't really have much to complain about here. Though, if I do put my modern gaming goggles on, sure, the game looks old. But there are plenty of titles that try to capture the same exact aesthetic today, many of which are entirely unsuccessful. You're not going to get a ton of graphical fidelity here, but everything in the game is pleasant to look at. Moving on to the sound and music, nearly every aspect of the audio in this game is outstanding. The music is truly legendary, with Koji Kondo's various themes becoming a staple in all Zelda titles that would follow, and even being recognizable outside of pure gaming culture. If I had to levy a complaint about the music, it's that I wish there was more of it. The overworld is literally only one song, though it is an awesome song. Each dungeon, aside from the final one, is all one song though it too is awesome, and the other songs in the game are only used in very specific circumstances, like the title screen, ending credits, and the last dungeon in the game. Every single song, in any given instance, plays on infinite repeat, which I will admit can get a little old occasionally, but that's mostly restricted to dungeons where you might find yourself spending a significant amount of time trying to figure out where to go. Still, it is a relatively, relatively minor complaint. Beyond the background musical tracks, I love the musical stingers that play when certain actions happen, like when you complete a dungeon or find a secret. Those, just as much as the true music, have become an iconic part of pop culture even today. Sound effects are similarly excellent, and I especially appreciated some of the ambient noise that was embedded in the environment, primarily the wave-like sound that plays when you're on a beach. I know it's super simple by today's standards, but even that simple sound, which is pretty much just white noise, was somehow evocative in the moment as I was playing the game. Also, the sound of your sword blast when you have full life and can fire off one of your sword laser beam attacks? Just awesome. Simply an amazing, iconic auditory experience. Moving on to the narrative and story, there is a surprising amount of backstory in the game, and if anyone ever wants to go down a really interesting convoluted rabbit hole, look up Legend of Zelda Timeline and see how every single game in the Zelda universe ties together. Back when we just had the first Legend of Zelda, though, things were a bit simpler, and this is what the overall story is. So once upon a time, 
in the kingdom of Hyrule, an evil entity named Ganon, who is literally referred to as the Prince of Darkness, steals the Triforce of Power, one of three magical artifacts said to grant its wielder near-unlimited power. In an effort to prevent Ganon from retrieving additional pieces of the Triforce, Princess Zelda takes the Triforce of Wisdom and splits it into eight parts, hiding each in a dungeon before she herself is captured and imprisoned by Ganon's minions. Link answers the call to adventure and vows to recover the pieces of the Triforce, save the princess, and restore peace to the kingdom. I loved the backstory of the game, and I especially love how these humble beginnings spawned such a lore-rich game world. I'm one of those people that love the hidden lore, so to speak, behind each game. The obvious story beats are great and interesting, but it's the stuff hidden below the surface that really intrigues me. With Zelda, you have not only a really strong backstory for your purpose in the game world, but also a bunch of stuff that's only hinted at. Like, who created the Triforce? Why is Ganon evil? Where did he come from? Those kinds of things aren't explicitly addressed, but the way the story is formed, it makes you wonder about those and other things. It's an expertly curated way of telling you what you need to know, but still leave you wanting more. And I loved it. Moving on to the playability and controls, the control scheme for the game is relatively straightforward. You move around the game world with your D-pad, navigating from screen to screen, each of which is pretty much self-contained. There isn't any smooth scrolling in this title. And at any given point, you can either use your sword or any number of items that you pick up during your adventure. To change what item you need to use, you have to bring up your status screen, select the item, and then return to the game world, which I know some people have argued is a bit cumbersome, but I really never had an issue myself. It was always pretty quick to navigate. With such a simple control scheme, it's surprising that the game can be as complex as it is, but that's driven primarily by the mechanics and variety of different enemy encounters, item use cases, and general design of the world. For the most part, the controls feel fine, though I will admit that occasionally I had a hard time positioning myself in a way where I could both avoid getting hit by an enemy while at the same time still being able to attack. That might sound a little confusing, so let me explain. I believe, though I do not have 100% proof of this, that the game's overall movement is based on a sort of grid-based navigation. You can kind of see elements of this in the graphical tiles and dungeons, and how enemies move from tile to tile when they walk around. That being said, movement is in fact smooth. It's not like when you press in a direction, you move a whole tile's worth of space. But even with that smooth incremental movement, it feels like some aspects of the game, like hit detection, are still based on the tile versus your exact placement in the world. This can cause some issues with you taking damage and can also make it difficult to judge the distance for hitting certain enemies. That being said, this is a pretty minor complaint, and it's entirely possible that this is simply something I'm feeling versus an actual design mechanic in the game. I did notice it enough to call it out, but it didn't really detract from my enjoyment of the game. It is a bit different than more modern control schemes, though, so just keep that in mind. Overall, the game remains infinitely playable and controls well even today. But I do want to talk a bit about some aspects of the game. These are a little bit of a mixed bag for me. So first, let's talk about some of the monsters and encounters. For the most part, 
All of the monsters and enemies in the game are designed incredibly well, with interesting attack patterns and weaknesses that, once you learn them, are relatively easy to deal with while still being somewhat random and challenging. I do have to call attention to a couple of monsters, though, that I absolutely despise. I'm going to start by talking about the Wizrobes. These guys will ruin your day. They can come in either orange or blue varieties. The orange Wizrobes pretty much just spawn in a spot. They fire off some of their magic beams, then they disappear, and then they respawn somewhere else in the room. They're relatively simple to take care of. The blue Wizrobes move around and fire their, their magic beams at you, and they change directions kind of randomly, and kind of just makes your life a little miserable. And a lot of times when you're facing these Wizrobes, they appear together. There's a bunch of orange and blue ones in the same room, along with some other enemy types out there that will serve to make your life miserable. Like the like likes, which are just these vicious little mirror shield eating creatures that I just really dislike. Anyway, talking more about the Wizrobes for now. When they shoot out their magic beam, they can be deflected. You can deflect them with your magic shield, which, like we talked about, you can buy at various vendors in the game world. The thing is that they're often paired with like-likes. These like-likes are, they almost look like a little moving chest uh, that go around the dungeon world. They're absolutely awful because they're not difficult. It's not like they're hard to deal with or they have a ton of HP or it's just, they're not that bad, but if a like-like grabs you. It can eat your magic shield. It's kind of random. It doesn't always eat your magic shield, but it happened a bunch of times to me, and I don't know exactly what the formula is as far as whether it eats your shield or not. If it does eat your shield, that means that you have no way to deflect the Wizrobe's magical beams, and those magical beams really, really hurt. So you might say, well, just avoid the like-likes, deflect the magic beams, and you'll be good. And yeah, that makes kind of sense. But the Wizrobes, because they're porting all over the room, and because you're trying to avoid their blasts, and you're trying to avoid where they spawn, and you're trying to avoid the blue ones that are just walking randomly towards you and trying to trying to bash you with their magic, and you're trying to avoid these like-likes, I can guarantee you at some point you're going to walk into a like-like, it's going to grab onto you, it's going to destroy your magic shield, and then things become infinitely more difficult. And the fact is that if you're in a dungeon and you need to go out and get your magic shield, as soon as you leave the dungeon, that resets your dungeon progress, which means when, you, when you're in the dungeon, anytime there's certain rooms where you can clear out and it remains clear, and that keeps certain areas unlocked so that when you have to progress through it again, like if you die and you have to start from the beginning of the dungeon, you don't necessarily have to clear every single room. If you leave the dungeon, however, it will reset that progress, which means... If you had beaten a few really difficult rooms and then you lost your magic shield and you can't progress without your magic shield because of all the magical beams or fireballs that are being blasted at you, you have to leave the dungeon anyway and you got to redo the whole thing over, which opens yourself up to once again losing your shield as you move back through the dungeon. So Wizrobes, pretty awful by themselves. Pairing them with Like Likes, even more awful. I really don't like these guys. Now let's talk about Dark Nuts. Dark nuts are these knight-like creatures where they move around in the game world, primarily in dungeons, and they come in two varieties as well. They come in orange and blue. 
The orange guys are a little bit easier to deal with. The blue ones much less so because the blue ones have a ton of hit points. And the blue ones are really tricky to deal with until you get some upgraded weaponry, until your your sword gets upgraded. Because the way it works, you cannot attack a dark nut from the front. It will deflect your attack. You cannot do any damage. You have to hit a dark nut from either the side or behind. The issue is that dark nuts are constantly moving. And most of the time when you're fighting a dark nut, you're going to be in a room with a ton of other dark nuts. So in order to get the attack in, you're dodging all these other enemies left and right. You're trying to hit these things from the side or from behind. You will almost definitely get hammered by one. And then if you get hammered by one, you may get hammered by others. And then that once again just leads to a bad time overall. Dark nuts are not what I would consider difficult per se, but they are irritating and they do take some time to deal with, especially until you get your upgraded sword. Now, there is one other enemy that we have to discuss, but to do so, we have to talk about another aspect of the game, and it is one I do want to spend a little bit of time on. So perhaps now is the time to really dig into The Legend of Zelda's second quest. So let's talk about the second quest. It is effectively a new game plus mode. It's totally remixed game content. When you beat the game, it basically says, hey, your quest isn't done. You now have a new quest to do. And when you go back to your saved game to start up the save file, you now see that the link icon's a little bit different. He's kind of having his sword up in the air. That means that you are now about to start the second quest. Totally remixed. Brand new dungeon layouts. More difficult enemy encounters. And most importantly, you face more difficult enemies sooner in the game, which means you're not quite as equipped for them as what you would have been in the normal uh, first quest. All of the items that you're expecting to find have moved around. The secrets have moved around there. Nothing is where you expect it. Nothing is where you remember it from the first uh, playthrough. This also includes the same irritating enemies that we just talked about. And most of the time they're thrown at you in even worse combinations or in even worse kinds of mechanics and the ways they're trying to use it. So it makes it really not all that great. And then to top it all off, they add a new enemy to the game. They add the red bubble. Let me tell you about the red bubble and why this thing is absolutely the bane of my existence. When you're playing in the second quest and when you're going through the dungeons, there are certain rooms and certain dungeons where there are these red bubble things. They don't do any damage. So you might think, okay, cool, that's great. The thing is, when a red bubble hits you, it removes your ability to use your sword. And you cannot regain the ability to use the sword unless you are healed by a fairy or you find a blue bubble and you walk into the blue bubble and that restores your ability to use your sword. There are some dungeons and there are some rooms where a blue bubble does not exist in the room with the red bubble. And it's not like you're only facing these red bubbles. You can't attack them. It's not like you can defeat a red bubble. So the red bubbles will exist in perpetuity. And a lot of times the game throws you in rooms with red bubbles in addition to whiz robes with like likes or in rooms with dark nuts. And like we just talked about, those are pretty much my least favorite enemies and the red bubble even more so. When you include all of those in a single room together, let me tell you, 
it did not make, at least for me, it did not make for a fun time. It was very, very frustrating. And there are some rooms where there's a bunch of red bubbles and like one blue, one of the blue bubbles. And you have to try to time it. You have to try to hit the blue bubble to get out of the room so that you don't get out of the room without your sword being disabled, which is a little bit harder to do than what you might expect. It's definitely tricky. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just hate the red bubbles. I legitimately hate the red bubbles. I, they are, they really, really irritated me. And when you combine them with the other enemies that I really hate, like the Wizrobes and the like likes and the dark nuts, man, it was a little bit frustrating. I will be honest. Those enemies just to me really made second quest a much, much more difficult experience. In the second quest, just generally speaking, the game turns from difficult but doable. The first quest is not a walk in the park. It, it is, it's challenging. There's a lot of challenge in the first quest. The second quest changes from a doable experience into a you will die over and over experience, which is primarily driven by some of those enemy encounters like we were talking about. Oh, I didn't even talk about the rooms where there's fireballs being shot at you by these inanimate objects that are included in the room. Boy, those are irritating too. And if you don't have a magic shield there, they're going to knock you around and into other enemies. And it's just, it's just a painful experience. They're really difficult encounters. So you have these really difficult encounters in dungeons and you're going to die and it's going to make you restart the dungeon. And like we were talking about, luckily some of the rooms remain cleared when you restart because a lot of times those rooms are pretty challenging and the fact that you get by them at all is a good thing. But when you restart the dungeon, you only have your three heart containers filled. You have your other heart containers, but they're all empty. And if you want to refill your HP, you either have to use a health potion, which hopefully you bought, or you have to visit a fairy, which means you have to leave the dungeon, which will reset those challenge rooms, which kind of defeats the purpose of getting all of that HP back since those challenge rooms in a lot of instances will decimate you so beyond the magic shield issue that we talked about already there's also an hp issue here where if you die in a dungeon and you need to replenish your hit points even if you were further along if you leave the dungeon it resets all of your progress it's just one of those things it's a vicious gameplay loop cycle it is doable and i was able to eventually do it but man it does require some fortitude. The second quest in particular is just a really challenging experience. It is definitely one of those challenge modes. If you want to challenge yourself, play the second quest. It is it is definitely a challenge. Oh, by the way, second quest also adds a ton of invisible passages that you can only navigate by literally walking into a wall. There's no real telegraph for this. It's literally just you see a wall, you kind of hold the hold your D-pad down and keep walking into it until it makes you pass through the wall magically. I got to be honest, I am not sure that I love that particular mechanic. So regardless of those critiques, and I recognize that I've been a little negative on the title over the past few minutes, but regardless of those critiques, the game is still a mostly enjoyable experience from beginning to end. I just, I was not a huge fan of some of the mechanics and designs of the second quest monster rooms or just the way that they designed those encounters. Overall, though, how did it feel? How did it feel to play the game? I truly had a great time playing the game. 
except when it felt like I was banging my head against the wall trying to beat the somewhat unfair encounter designs that were most mostly prevalent in the second quest. Honestly, the second quest is just brutal. It's not the hardest game ever, but it is one that will almost certainly frustrate you at some point. For me, the first quest is an incredibly well-designed and mostly balanced experience that represents the pinnacle of 1980s game design. The second quest, I just forget about balance there. That one is all about the challenge. That being said, I do love the fact that the second quest exists, and it is truly a different experience that today would likely never happen without paying for DLC content. Even though I love its existence, I just don't love the experience of playing the second quest. Quest 1, however, absolutely amazing. So what is our verdict? Does The Legend of Zelda hit our pantheon of classic gaming? Well, let me say... This is an incredibly well-designed, albeit old-school experience. There is no hand-holding, but the world invites you to uncover its secrets and learn more about the game, and you will most likely have a ton of fun along the way. I'm not going to lie. If you're not ready for a challenging, bordering on unfair experience, do not play Second Quest. Stick with the first quest and have a blast being challenged in situations that, for the most part, always feel fair. Except for Wizrobes. Seriously, I just hate those guys. Regardless, the total package of the original Legend of Zelda is quite simply excellent. And while the game does have some elements that I believe could be smoothed out, those don't truly detract from the game's overwhelmingly stellar design. Therefore, The Legend of Zelda is, without question, our newest entry in our pantheon of classic gaming. It is one of the most influential games of all time, and deserves to be experienced by anyone who has even a passing interest in video games. If you're looking for a decidedly old-school, challenging, absorbing experience, this legend is one that's well worth experiencing. That was our episode on The Legend of Zelda. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give me some comments, feedback, advice, or suggestions about future episodes, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you could reach out. You can either send me an email at the address classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or shoot me a note on Twitter with the handle at classicgamingt. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think, so feel free to drop me a line and let's have the discussion. Before we sign off for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure, The Dig. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that game. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services because this podcast pretty much lives everywhere the podcasts live. So if it wouldn't be too much of a bother, I would love it if you could leave me a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to get a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what this is really about is getting feedback so that we can create the best possible podcast that I possibly can. I want this to be 
the best podcast. I want you all to enjoy what we're doing. I want everybody to enjoy what we're doing. The only way to do that is to make sure that we're getting the feedback from everybody so that we don't have any gaps. We don't have any issues. If there are things that we need to think about a little bit differently, I would love to know that too, so that we're making sure we are creating the best podcast for all of us. We continuously grow. We continually add new members every single day to the community. I am incredibly enthused about what's happening. I hope all of you are as well. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the LucasArts adventure game, The Dig. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>